What you gonna play now? Bobby, I don't know. But what's an ever I play? It's got to be funky. Yeah. One, two, three, make, make it, it funky. funky. Listening to Ink Studs, and my guest this week is Lawrence Hubbard, also known as Raw Dog, who, with uh, his close friend H.P. McElwee, did uh, Real Dog comics, or Real Deal, Real Deal. comics. <laughs> Look at me, <laughs> slipping up already. Real Deal <laughs> comics, which uh, the two of you had self published um, since, right. was it 1990 was the first yeah. issue? Yeah, 1990, yeah. And uh, with issue seven coming out last year at Comic Con. And uh, the real deal hardcover from Fantagraphics, collecting those first seven issues as well as um, 
as uh, HP's um, mini original mini comics, which I guess served as the um, influence in starting this as well as that's it you expect to have issue eight out next year i think yeah definitely before the comic con yeah nice mm-hmm. um now real deal i hadn't heard about it until i guess it was like four years ago when johnny ryan started telling everyone to check it out <laughs> okay yeah, i love johnny yeah yeah and it it came from left field because here's this like amazing intense visceral violent book mm-hmm. that uh so many folks recently been doing work that really comes along the same vein but you're doing this stuff like we said the first issue came out in 1990 1990 yeah and uh and it's really interesting it kind of came up just at the right time for folks to be like oh yeah um <laughs> and and uh, so I kind of want to maybe go back and know more about you and more about HP. Um, we should mention HP passed. Uh, what year was that? 1998. Uh, April 1998. He had a, a stroke and a heart attack. Um, o- only 43. Yeah. Very, very mm-hmm. tragically young. And uh, mm-hmm. But his memory is very alive in this book. Um, Definitely. And so maybe kind of uh, tell us a bit about your own kind of what you were growing up to with, what you were into, what you were exposed to. Uh, I mean, that's what I first want to talk about before we yeah. jump into that partnership with HP. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, first I just, uh, uh, you know, I, uh, I started drawing when I was three. I was in a family, um, kind of had it rough my um father uh you know the parents broke up when i was uh about 10 uh going on 11 and he left us and uh we're on welfare and food stamps and then i had had two other sisters i have one sister's got mental problems she's um you know she can't take care of herself or anything and i have another sister who passed away in 2007 seven from breast cancer so oh, wow. we wow. yeah we had we had a um pretty rough time like I said and so I, I like I said I started drawing at three and I would uh, a lot of times I didn't have anything to draw and I'd drawn the um, inside pieces of paper in a books or uh, uh, sometimes I'd get uh, my uncle worked in computers back then I'd get uh, the, uh, the green bar paper I'd draw on that every now and then they had some drawing tablets back then we could get for like 50 cents 50 cents called a sketch pad I get one of those and I just draw and draw but um yeah, I always, you know, I always wanted to go to uh, college and get an art degree and all that. But you know, by the time I was eighteen, I just started working full time and working in uh, just all kind of, you know, different, you know, stockroom jobs. And uh, you know, I got into computers uh, when I was about twenty. But kind of same thing, it kind of worked it out. I was a production control analyst, and um, next thing you know, um, you know, uh, you know, you started getting laid off all the time. So in the meantime, yeah, I just I just drew all the time, and you know sometimes I try to take classes at you know community college, Santa Monica College, UCLA, but you know you got to work all the time, you got a full time job. Like sometimes you take a class or two, and then next thing you know, you know you have to drop out, and uh, it's just pretty rough, just you know just struggling all the time. What kind of stuff were you looking at um, when you were young, and like when you were kind of in a teen developing your taste and stuff? Oh, I um, well, I love Mad Magazine. Those guys in there, those are my favorite artists. You know, like uh, Jack Davis, Al Jaffe, Mort Drucker, 
uh, Sergio Agronis, all those guys. And uh, I love the way they drew. And uh, I used to like, you know, looking at comic books, uh, you know, Marvel and DC. And uh, like, you know, looking at the comics, always looking at the comics in the newspaper at the time. I mean, a Dick Tracy handicap, uh, uh, Brenda, uh, was it just a bunch of, bunch of, you know, all, all the stuff, you, Dennis the Menace, all the stuff you've seen. And I was always a big fan. Uh, I like realistic drawing. And I like, uh, always liked uh, Johnny Quest and Doug Wildly, the way he drew. I love the way he draws. And um, just, yeah, those are the kind of things I liked. I like books by Bern Horgath, uh, you know, the guy that drew Tarzan. He did a lot of art books. Yeah, the anatomy. Yeah, anatomy. Yeah, dynamic light all that stuff. And uh, yeah, those those are the those are my influences. Yeah, those those are the um, different artists I you know I liked and uh, old time illustrators like uh, J C Lidecker and uh, people I lo- like love to look at books of their art and just uh, you know where you know you just picture something in your mind and you put it down on paper. I always admired that. Now, had you ever done any comics yourself before Real Deal One? Uh, no, I, I used to, it was funny, I used to just, you know, draw kind of different stuff, and, uh, yeah, I never really, you know, like I say, I was always busy all the time, you know, like I said, we didn't have much money, and I was, you know, working and stuff, and I, I kind of, you know, I draw every now and then, but uh, until I ran into Harold, and we, you know, we both worked together, that's when, you know, I, like, I finally found an outlet for my art, you know, was the real deal. What do you think it was about him that kind of pulled that out of you, and got you jazzed up to do this yeah well we both you know friends we worked at this uh, major savings and loan at the time we worked uh, you know he was in the outer office of the stock room i worked in the stock room you know stock and shelves and stuff he did the invoices and so we used to go down on the uh, uh lower level in the building and drink you know like the other guys down there and he'd have a bottle down there he'd hang out so anyway one day we were sitting up and he's drawing this stuff in in his style as you see in the book mm-hmm. and i was sitting there drinking i said what the hell is this you're drawing he said, this is GC. I said, what? And he said, yeah, it stands for Gangster Cool. And he was drawing and stuff. So, you know, I, I looked at it. I laughed. It was funny. And then uh, a, a few more times we're down there, and he draws something else, and I'd bust up laughing. And I said, you know, I draw, too. He said, I didn't know you draw. I said, yeah, I draw. You know, and I said, I could take this and, you know, clean it up, make it more, look more realistic and stuff. So then we, we just, I started doing that. And then, you know, then his stuff was so funny. You know, it was something because like a lot of stuff used to bore me. Like, like you know, I like comic books and everything, but a lot of times, you know, you've read a few of them. The stories kind of seem the same. Superheroes kind of seem the same. But this real deal thing is just really caught my attention. Plus, I had a lot of rage in me about things I was going through in my life, and then he had a rage, as you can see, about things. You know, you know, he's taking care of other people. Both of us, you know, you're working jobs you can't stand and. You know, you never had a good chance to go to college or anything because you, you always had to work and make money. And so these are internal rages he, we had. So, you know, I started drawing it. And then at first, we were, like, sending it out to other people thinking they'd publish it. And uh, they would, uh, you know, sometimes you'd get a hell no letter. A lot of times you just never hear from anybody. And one time we sent Real Deal out to uh, Marvel Comics. <laughs> and they, yeah. And they actually sent me a letter. I, the, the, the people have been wanting me to find it. I that was, that was a long time. I couldn't find the letter. They actually sent me a personalized letter. It was in a, a Marvel in an envelope with Spider-Man on it. And I looked. I said, "Holy shit! This is it. This is the deal." It fell through the mail slot. And I opened it up, and they guy said, um, "You know, usually we get letters from people, and we just throw them in the trash or don't even pay attention." 
You said this is a one in one thousand time you to take off and uh, dust off the typewriter and write you something. And they said we thought this was just fucking hilarious. Everybody in the office is busting up. But sorry, we can't use it. And see you down the road. So, but see, at least they did look at it. So that was interesting. So what did uh, so that getting that Marvel letter kind of did it like get you encouraged just to kind yeah. of go full tilt? Yeah, it, it kind of showed me, like, um, you know, you say, well, hey, somebody does think this is something we got here. Plus, everybody would show it to just love it. And, um, you know, and that said, hey, somebody, you know, the guys out there notice it. So what happened was, uh, you know, at the time I was making pretty good money. I was in, working in computers. And uh, we were like, you know, you know, after, you know, after several, you know, turndowns and people not, uh, you know, responding, you know, he's like, fuck it. Let's just publish ourselves. And, uh, you know, I had the money to do it, and he had a little money. And um, we just, um, I found a printer. It was a guy printed a Wave newspaper, and he'd never done a comic before. And then the way, the size I had drawn everything, that's why that, did, do you have issue number one? I think I have number two. Okay. Yeah, issue number one was super large. It's like the size of an old Life magazine. Yeah. And, yeah. um and the reason why I was at that size because I had drawn at the size I drew it at. The guy said he couldn't reduce it down to normal magazine size. So that was as small as he could reduce it. So that's why the issue number one came out so big. <laughs> and then it cost more because it was big. So then I you know, had to go with the paper cover instead of a gloss cover. Yeah. Uh-huh. Learning curve. That's it. That's it. I you know, never, you know, like most people do stuff, you know, they like worked in the industry for a while and they strike out on their own. We knew nothing. We were just like, okay, let's do this, you know. Now, you were, and you still are, uh, living in L.A. And, yes. And, like, late 80s L.A., there's, you know, it's kind of a very talked-about era, especially. Yeah. Um, you know, considering N.W.A. and all that kind of thing. And so I'm wondering about living there at that time and how that kind of informed the work. Um, um, it's a yeah, kind of a lot catharsis of, the... of, like being a black guy living in LA, LA police, all that kind of thing. Yeah. You know, we, yeah, we had been, you know, like a lot of stuff in, in the GC characters is like stuff we've actually lived through or, you know, exaggerated of course, or, um, people we know have lived through like GC was a real guy and, uh, who lived up in Oakland. But, um, yeah, the things, you know, things on the street, like I say, you had a lot of the rage and then, you know, 90, what, 91, 92, or 91, I think the Rodney King beating, and 92, you had the riots, and that was just a trip where, just like, if you were down here, just like, all oh, hell broke loose, where you'd see a place, you went to the store one day, the next day you go by, and the whole place was burnt down, and uh, the place I was going to take a suit to the dry cleaners that, that Thursday or something, and I felt, I didn't feel like doing it, and then the next day I went back, and the dry cleaners was burnt down, so. Oh, Jesus. Yeah, it was buck wild, and then it was weird. And for a while, it looked like there was no law, like you didn't see cops. Then you saw people walking up and down the street, like in mobs and stuff, you know, carrying clubs, like look like something out of a movie, like somebody's joining a lynch mob or something. And I remember living in the house at the time, just closed the gate, and I had my gun, and I just stayed strapped up, like anybody tries to make up. You know, you feel like you're in a panic in the year zero or something. And so, uh, but nothing happened to us, but. You know, just just everything was in chaos. Streets were shut down and stuff. And it was so weird. Like everything was right here in L.A. because I worked in El Segundo at the time. And that uh, what would it have been? That um, 
But oh, I had to go back to work that Sunday. I worked in a data center. And as soon as you drove out of L.A., it's like everything looked normal again. Yeah. And it was a trip because I remember I was driving and, you know, you saw like a National Guard standing around. I went to my night shift. And I was down in El Segundo, and like you didn't see anything. But then you went back to L.A., and every ship was, you know, burned up. Uh, big stores looted, and uh, it, it was crazy. It was, but but yeah, that a lot of that rage in L.A. and stuff that that uh, you know, was going on, and yeah, that definitely had an effect on just the feelings of rage of the characters and everything. Yeah, well, one of the things is the characters they're um, nam vets, and so I'm wondering about yeah. how that like. You guys growing up in the in the eighties and but in the seventies uh, and being around these guys um, that had come back from Nam and gone through shit and just seeing how that changed them. And I'm curious about that, like how much you'd seen uh, and how that kind of works into the work. Yeah, because um, yeah, we knew a lot of Nam vets, especially like you say in the seventies and eighties. You know, a lot of these guys, you know, like you say, they're just back, and some of them really fucked up in the head. And because, you know, like you've seen all kind of body shot up. Some of them have been shot and um, some were cool. Some were uh, kind of nutty. And then it just um, that's what the uh, R team story, because, you remember the time we came with the A team was on. Yeah. And we were just like, well, what if the, we had the R team? And they were just, you know, like the A team was kind of nice. And you remember, they never actually killed anybody. No, it just yeah. face kept picking up girls. And, yeah, uh, yeah. Like B.A. Barack has got knocked out with tranks. Yeah, yeah. And we said we take it to the point where, where they, these guys they wind up killing everybody, including the people they're they're working for and stuff. Yeah. And, um, and like, yeah, I used to know this guy named Wade. He was he's a non vet and he was um uh, he's kind of nutty. And it was just funny. Some of them we you know came across. I guess they went through so much shit and everything. They just just definitely something like that affects you. And uh, when somebody's kind of like kind of off, you know. But um, you know, in the same time, he said, "Damn, this guy's been through some shit. He's seen bodies brutal." And or you know you're talking to somebody, you say, "Damn, this guy actually killed people," you know, and has a trip. But you know that's what you know. A lot of them sometimes guys walk around still wearing their uh, fatigues and stuff, you know, long after they were out. And so that that was like that was where the R team came from. Yeah, it's just folks that just can't return to society. Yeah, it's like they're still in Nam, even though they were in New York. You know, it's just a trip. Yeah. Um. Tell me about some of the other cultural influences. Uh, I feel like some of the black exploitation movies of the seventies are kind of filtering in there too a bit. Oh, definitely. Especially yeah, with the uh, the pimps. And yeah, the pimp yeah, we definitely. Yeah, well, what's funny? Uh, yeah, like I say, GC. I mean, these are guys you went to the disco with and stuff, and you know, like GC. He he's still like, even though he's now, that's the thing. He's still in the seventies. He wears his platforms. He drives a seventy-three Fleetwood. The other guy, Willie's, you know, they, they wear bell bottoms and stuff. And it's that's the thing is like kind of that's their their influence. That's the you know Shaft, Superfly, you know the Mac, all of that. They've they, you know loved all you know to watch those movies on a continuous loop. Yeah. And that's where um, you know where, where it was like yeah we were the different with you know start getting into Black Pride and like you know before that like a lot of black people in movies they had you know mostly Sidney Poitier, a few other people and. It's like you always trying to be good, like, you know, show the white man, hey, I'm I'm just as good as you. I can be just as nice as I can do that. And then the exploitation movie is like, fuck that shit. This is our world. This is how we live. So that's that's kind of like where GC and his crew are from. Yeah. Um, now, we talked a little bit about how uh, some of the stuff they're talking about your experiences. And I'm curious about that real catharsis that you guys are getting from 
from doing this book and just I'm also presuming a lot of fun just coming up with oh. the most ridiculous concepts yeah yeah definitely and we just it was just oh boy when Harold was like we just we'd sit up and talk about real deal for hours he'd come over once a week and like I would you know say I'd drawn a, a page or two and he'd just come over and look at it and we'd just plan in the future like I say busting up laughing or like we start having I Years and it's just one bouncing off the other. Well, what if this happened? What if we do this? What if we do that? And and it was just like, like I say, in every everything in there is like somebody you've known, or you know, variation of several people you've known. And that, yeah, and like I say, it's just it, it was really like a release because they say our lives were just basically just work all the time and struggle to pay bills, struggle to take care of things, and then you know, real deal was like the escape and everything. Yeah. Now, are there any particular lines in the book, in like doing the comics, you're like, we can't do this, this is too horrible? You know, it's funny. Um, what did it, It's pretty, you know, kind of, we just kind of say, fuck it and do everything and make it shocking and stuff, like where GC kicks the pregnant woman in the stomach. It all, it's just kind of, you know, you know, where he tells them, you know, if anybody comes out, shoot the kids. It's like just, this ruthlessness. What I think what it I don't know, I'm trying to think of some things Hero came up with. Uh he's like, Oh, that's just too fucking raw. Uh they're killing a bunch of kids or um uh I forget. It was just like he would just just uh, you know, you'd say you wanna be raw or what and he would just I say like this is, is too much. We never did if you notice we didn't have a bunch of sexual shit in it, you know, one like a porno book or anything. No. Uh, yeah. And that that was a thing, you know, that was a conscious choice I said you know, like, uh, enough of this is bad enough already. I don't want anything by saying it's obscene or something. <laughs> yeah. Just all, all I can picture it now. Yeah, you know, that, that sex too, maybe not, but, you know, the scene of a kid in a wheelchair shooting his mom with a shotgun in the wheelchair yeah. flipping backwards. <laughs> that's okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's all that. That was just, like I say, just putting shit in there, you, you'll never see anywhere else, you know. That's the that, deal. Yeah, I, I love it. It's just. Uh, yeah. It keeps going and keeps going. <laughs> um, so how you you mentioned in the intro, um, HP? I guess he uh, wrote up to number five. Uh, yeah, I think more? yeah, yeah, number five. Yeah. Um, were there ideas that you'd remember that he would come up with that you still try and flesh out? Uh, yeah. Well, you know, it's funny. It's like. Um... I still have a lot of his, uh, you know, the, the books that he wrote, you know, the ones in his style, and I still, I, I get ideas from those. It, it's um, really a, a trip how um, he's like, his writing was the gift that just keeps giving. Yeah. And then another thing, basically there's a formula for this story. The formula is a real deal story. Have them doing something just normal people doing every, do every day, like say going to a car wash. And then you, you have a, a, some type of confrontation, and then it just all hell breaks loose. You know, they say, you know, there's murder and anarchy going to a simple thing of going to a car wash, going to the store, just walking down the street minding your own bill, or like, you know, in Real Deal Number 3, where he's just at the bus station picking up Chino Bill, where he just got out of prison. Yeah. And then, you know, next thing you know, all hell's breaking loose, and that's, you know, multiple people killed, and that's the formula for a Real Deal story. <laughs> they just yeah. don't know when to relax. Yeah, yeah, it's just like you're on edge and you're exploding it every minute, you know. You never you never back down, you never take any shit. You just, you know, you're just on edge and 
And like, and another thing, you're ready to die at any moment. He's like, fuck it, I'm ready to go right now. Yeah. I guess, I'm that, not taking... I guess that kind of goes with like the whole Vietnam vets thing where it's like these guys yeah. just, it doesn't matter anymore. Yeah, yeah. And you can imagine, imagine you're in a combat situation and every day you wake up, you say, I might get killed today. Your best friend, he you know, he gets his head blown off right next to you, and then you got to keep going. And I've talked to guys that've been through that, and they say you just get numb. Guy said, "Aren't you terrified?" He said, "He said first you are, but after you're out there, while well, he said you just get numb, like you just keep going." Somebody says, "Hey, you know, so and so got killed." You're like, "Okay," and you, you know, you can't even react. You just got like each day, you're like, "I might get killed too," so I, you know, I just got to be on edge, you know. One of the things I, I found interesting in the book is uh, watching you kind of develop uh, your style in it, and and I'm yeah. interested about that because like going from not doing comics, just doing some drawing here and there, a lot of yeah. calls of drawing as a kid, and then like going full tilt into doing a comic and just like how you learnt different things or the process of I guess like just trying and seeing what sticks. Yeah, just just trial and error. My main objective always is to have realistic looking bodies, you know, five fingers, five toes, arms, legs look normal, and then cartoony faces to get the point across. Yeah. So the main thing, just drawing real deal, really, you know, just raises your art level up, you know, where, you know, you practice your foreshortening, your perspective, all of that, where, you know, I look at stuff and I want it to look, okay, this looks looks real, this is this is right. And you just, you know, when you draw all the time, it just gets better and better. Mm-hmm. You know, just like I look at old, like, say, uh, Milton Tanner, who did uh, Steve Canyon and all that stuff, and uh, Terry and the Pirates, and I look at his early art from the 30s, and it's all right, but, you know, kind of okay. And then you look like by the 40s and 50s, he was just excellent, you know, yeah. just awesome, perfect. And, you know, you say, because you're just drawn all the time, and, you know, drawing's like being an athlete. It's like, you know, you're working out, and you, you constantly get better and better. One of the interesting things I find with your work, and Mm -hmm. that this comment may work or won't work, is like, Mm -hmm. I don't see a lot of um, similar style stuff. And the closest I I think of, and it just keeps jumping out to me, is like, some of Gary Panter's stuff is doing like something a little similar with like the the weird way you fill the spaces with black of like, being in these like, almost shape-forming ways. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I'm making sense. Am I making sense? Yeah, well, what's funny, many people, two people, people compare my work to, is it, was it Barry Panther? Yeah. And the other guy's Ben Mara. And it goes up when I was at the Comic-Con, a guy came up and he said, oh, you remind me of Ben, you know, your art reminds me of Ben Mara. And I said, yeah, I met him last year and stuff. And he said he's influenced by my art and stuff. Oh, yeah. And then the, the Pat Padler guy, yeah, he, he, I, yeah, I had several people tell me that, too. But they're both good, so I like them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, it, it Gary's also from L.A. Um, a little before you. He was, like, there in the punk days of the late 70s, early yeah. 80s. And maybe there's, like, some kind of, like, street L.A. aesthetic, maybe. So, when I was drawing way before that, like I say, just individual pictures, but once I started drawing real deal and doing panel after panel, that's where I think my style finally came in in the forest where, you know, start drawing a certain way. Um, now, I was reading a little bit at the back of the interview, and this is, or the back of the book, and there's the interview, and you talked about one of your interests of 
going into, and I really want to jump more into this, is you're mm-hmm. interested in like conspiracy theory psyop stuff. Yeah. And so I want to kind of know a lot more about your internet because I find that kind of stuff really fascinating. Yeah, I just, yeah, I've been getting into it in recent years because, you know, my mind is pretty logical. And I look around me and you say, well, why are things the way they are? You know, why does it like look like no matter who the president is, everything just gets worse? Uh, so many things, like people keep talking about doing this and doing that and everything just gets worse. And then I said, you know, I started getting into the, the PSYOPs conspiracy series and I see like, you know, like you said, there's somebody in the background running things and the people in the front are just like puppets. And it's like, a, a, a you know, a, a trick to make you think, oh, you have a choice and this is how this goes and that, this is how that. But it's all bullshit because it's already set up, you know. Yeah, and that's yeah. what yeah. The, my next issue, yeah, is going to be the psyop issue. You got the story, we just got to finish drawing it. But it's just how you know, just you know, how the Kennedy assassination, the um, you know, jet, the RFK assassination, other assassination, and, and you read about them, and or you know, so many things, and you say, well, it couldn't have happened that way, and then you start delving into it, and um, you know, and it, you see so many people involved, and how do things just fall together so perfectly? And you said it has to be more to it than just what they're letting on. And that's what I've got. You know, just like, for example, all of my friends right now, I have, a, I have a job, too, besides my art. I'm a security guard. Mm-hmm. And all of my friends, you know, I used to work in IT, the stuff, the Dutch and Joel and all that shit got outsourced, like, to uh, Mumbai, India and stuff, because, they, you know, they do it for way cheaper. Yeah. friend of yeah. mine's still working in IT, but he's, he's making the same money as I make as a guard. He used to be a, a you know, shift manager, but you know, everything's been outsourced, so they just what what few things they need to have done here. That's all they got. I I got another friend was a um, uh, what do you call it a um, technical director at, at Fox Sports. He got laid off, and he's working I think two days a week now. And it's like everybody I know is struggling, or if they got a job, it's a shitty job, and already working part time. And, and these are all people who used to have nice full time jobs, used to make good money and stuff. And you say, something's going on here. And it looks like no matter who's the president, who's the mayor, who's the governor, it's like things keep moving in the same way. And it's a trend. Yeah. You know, it's just, yeah, it's just like, like you know, like they're just telling you things. And you say, okay, just make things better. And then they just get worse. And then, like, you just have to deal. <laughs> so how does this work into the real deal story? How do the boys well, deal with it? So what I have in there, if, if you kind of notice, you notice that the boys' real deal, they never get stopped by the cops or anything. No. And, and it's just like all this nonstop chaos. So he finally meets uh, – did you ever see the movie Network? Yeah, but a while ago. Yeah. I can't well, remember. Well, yeah. Well, the guy that I don't know to meet with the one scene where he Howard Beale meets Mr. Jensen, who's like the big boss who tells him, look, here's what I need you to do. That's what GC's in the ghetto, and all of a sudden, uh, uh, you know, Bentley Mussolini comes by, and a guy's sitting in it, and he gets in the car, and the guy just starts running down to him. This rich guy, have you ever wondered why, you know, the cops never do this? Have you ever wondered why this and that? And it's because I'm running things, and, you know, like, you're working for me, and uh, this, that, and the other. And GC's shocked, and he, you know, he tries to pull a gun on him, and then, you know, everything's bulletproof and stuff. And he winds up getting ejected from the car, and it's just like all this chaos you do here in the ghetto, the dope dealing, killing, and all of that. That's what I want you to do. Yeah. And, then, yeah. and the story takes off from there. But he finally finds out why you know he's been able to run amok all these years, 
And because it's all, you know, like I say, nothing happens by accident. It's all well planned. Well, I'm sure you've read about how in the in the 70s when the CIA would pump crack cocaine into the, into yeah. the ghettos and stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was, yeah, that was the thing where they said, yeah, they unload. Well, what was funny, just like, have you ever heard of Freeway Ricky Ross? No. He was a big, uh, one of the biggest crack, uh, cocaine dealer, crack dealer down here in uh, L.A. And um, he first started dealing crack. Uh, he, his uh, high school teacher was supplying him. And so then, so then he started dealing so much that high school teachers said, "Hey, I can't, I can't cover you anymore. I'm gonna send you this other guy." So it was one of the big, uh, you know, dope dealers from uh, the, you know, the Medellin and stuff. And he, and he goes, and the guy's got like, you know, false wall, fake wall in the house, and sacks of, you know, coke and all this stuff. And he tells him, "Okay, I'm gonna give you credit and all that." So he's you know, with the big boys, but come to find out, one of the guy's henchmen was a CIA either FBI or CIA informant. So they knew Freeway Ricky Ross was dealing dope right from the beginning. Yeah. And they were just monitoring. And after that, they let him work, do it a few years, and they dropped a the boom on him. And he went to prison. He's out of prison now, but he even talks about the PSYOP and stuff. He's on, like, I think on been on the Alex Jones uh, channel uh, and all this stuff because, like, you know, they knew what he was doing right from the gate. But, you know, they just, you know, wanted to see who he knew and what he was doing and how big he gets. And then they said, okay, you know, long enough, maybe you're drunk, lower the boom on him and put him in jail. But, you know, everything was known already. Yeah. Or just like another thing I tripped on, you know, like I said, I really got into reading this stuff a lot. And just like, uh, you know, when King was assassinated, they said that uh, um, uh, a black man in a trench coat went to the uh, Lorraine Motel and they said King was going to stay on the lower floor. But he said, oh, I'm an advanced man for King. And uh, Dr. King likes to stay on high floors so he can look at the pool. And then uh, later after the assassination, they said, uh, the King's people said, we didn't have any guy, advanced man in our group. That, that We never heard of that guy. Yeah. And then all these things. And they say, yeah, he came to the hotel and stuff. So these are the things where, you know, like I say, they say, oh, things are one way. Then you get into all this stuff and you see this detail of the story numerous times other places. And you're like, shit, things aren't what they seem to be. And then, like they say, somebody's controlling things. And, um, you know, everybody's so wrapped up with their bullshit, most people don't even notice this. And one of the things I don't like to talk about with King is that near the end of his life, he wasn't even, he was really heavily focused on um, income equality and yeah. just the effects of poverty and how destructive that is. And, I mean, you can see how, um, you know, poverty creates these horrible cyclical effects on communities that actually yeah. break out into outrage when they've had enough and you know in 1992 was it smash up a city yeah um, yeah with rodney king yeah and like there were numerous incidents of police brutality before that but like rodney king that was like like the flashpoint like fuck it we're not taking this anymore we're, we're blowing up yeah and that's where the things build up and uh but yeah just like like with the king thing yeah that, that was another thing once he started veering off of, you know, talking about civil rights and stuff, and he, you know, also he was talking about ending the war, and he started talking about, yeah, the in income inequality. I think he said he was going to have a march on Washington for the poor, and I think it was like, okay, you crossed the line now. Yeah. You know, like, you can have civil rights, but, you know, you're talking about fucking with the war, we're talking billions of dollars, you're talking about marching on Washington, talking about people are poor, the greatest country in the world, and like, okay. Uh, you know, uh, you've been warned, you know, and then that, that, that's how it goes down. Like I said, when you really read this, thing, it's, it's really it's scary when you start seeing all the things in it. 
And it's not make-believe or bullshit. It's like, you know, you see facts, figures, FBI documents. It's really a trip. And that's where, you know, it's coming up with the uh, PSYOP issue. You know, stuff from Freedom of Information Act, all that stuff. And you see actual documents with the signatures on them. And I say, this this stuff is for real. Mm-hmm. And, and just the main thing, like I say, everybody I know is struggling now. And it, it, it's, you know, people, you know, 20, 15, 20 years ago were doing pretty good. And now they're just living hand to mouth, you know. And, you know, some of my yeah. older buddies, they can't even get a job because, you know, like, well, why am I going to hire this guy in his late 50s, early 60s? I get somebody in their early 20s and, you know, work the hell out of them and stuff, you know. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, it's a trip. And it's just, you know, everybody's, you know, some people are coming up with their own conspiracies or saying this, that, and the other. And it's just like, you know, you see so many people who have so much potential, but they, you know, they can't really put it to any use because everything's just kind of shut down right now. Yeah, so. it's I mean it's I've worked in poverty stuff for a number of years in Vancouver uh-huh. it's it's quite striking you see just uh, how horrible conditions can be for people and how yeah it's uh, unsustainable it, yeah if in your mind you, you have a mind just like my friend uh, Kim Tay, he was working for this company called Pace where they, you know, they did uh, weatherizing and, and like people run down houses and apartments. Mm-hmm. And um, he saw pe- people living so bad. This right here in Los Angeles. It's just unbelievable. People living somewhere where the toilet doesn't work and they're, you know, using a bathtub for a toilet. Yeah. And people yeah. sleeping on the floor and, you know, under a pile of clothes and just, he said, places so filthy, you know, you couldn't even work in there, you know, roaches and rats. And you're like, damn, that's, you know, you know, he was there a few, you know, 2014, 2015 in Los Angeles. Yeah. A trip, you know. Oh, yeah, there's places like that in Vancouver. Yeah, I can imagine. It's, uh, well, we had a thing here. I'm totally veering off topic, but it's my show. I can do what I want. Uh, <laughs> what you want. <laughs> uh, we Back in the 90s, uh, we had a giant psych ward that the province uh, shut down and just all the, the folks... Um, with really severe mental illness, got moved uh, into the downtown east side, which was, you know, the original Skid Row. Um, yeah. Like a not a good neighborhood, and it just got progressively worse and worse, and folks uh, with, with really severe illness got trapped into addiction cycles so quickly and so easily. Yeah. And it's... Uh, we're still recovering from it, and... You have this weird experience in Vancouver where uh, you ever read any Judge Dredd comics? Yeah, yeah, I've read a few. So you know how like you've got like this opulent like above city, and then you've just yeah. got like the shit, just the yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's kind of like that here, where Vancouver wow. is this like super expensive city with just like this worst horrible living conditions right in the heart of it. Um, mm. Yeah, I don't know. and it was sad is people with mental problems you know they can't fend for themselves and having them on the street that's just crazy yeah literally um, yeah no it, it it was a really it's it's still like it's been probably 30 years that this has been going on because like, wow. i've been working in the field for 15 years and just seeing just you know it's it's gotten better it used to be a lot worse but right now, yeah. like the whole neighborhood's kind of condensed to two blocks because of all the buildings that have been torn down and replaced with new buildings. So it's okay. very complex and contained and hard to describe. Um, so it's like a hipster yuppie kind of place now. 
Kind of. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. There was this uh, thing recently in town where uh, it was revealed that someone was doing a walking, a charge tour where they would show you the ghetto of Vancouver. You could pay money oh, to crazy. walk through the ghetto. Yeah. And it got revealed in the papers recently, and people were pretty outraged that someone was so. getting paid to show their misery. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. It's, it's pretty fucked. <laughs> but the real deal... Back That's to right. the thing that we're talking about. Um, you're going to be doing a bunch of events coming up. Don't know the dates and such, but yeah. keep uh, an eye on. I'm sure Fanographics will be posting. Um, I guess the book officially comes out in September. Yeah. Yes, I got an email yesterday. Yeah, September. Nice. And as I said, it's. I'm quite surprise I don't want to say surprise because Fanographics does a really good job with their production but it is a really nice package like yeah you know, the, they outdid the, themselves yeah it wasn't just tossed together like oh these are cool comics let's just throw in a hardcover it's like they actually did a lot of work to put this together and okay. uh, it, it's 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 really great so congrats thanks thanks um, I'm hoping this can turn into a cartoon show I tell you <laughs> <laughs> Real deal show. <laughs> well, if uh, Johnny Ryan can do a prison pit cartoon. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> now, I want to talk a bit about Johnny and um, that kind of resurgence of your work. Uh, I don't even know how many years ago that was, but how that was for you, that kind of folks checking it out and getting really excited about it and how that energized you. Well, it really make you feel good because I, you know, like I say, not being able to put out issues on a regular basis because you know time, money, and going through a lot of shit in your life. You know, people dying and dealing with things, and money problems and stuff. So, uh, yeah, I you know, have a hard time remembering exactly when I met Johnny Ryan. But even oh, I first met Johnny Ryan, I think it was two thousand one at the Comic Con. Oh, okay. Yeah, and he bought some real deals, and then he was showing them to other guys. And then, uh, you know, I had a bunch of people come by the table. I said, oh, we're doing good. And they said, oh, yeah, Johnny Ryan set me. And so I've known him off and on since then. But then recently, uh, yeah, you know, we uh, he lives not too far from here. He, he's been by my house before. And we, you know, go out to dinner and stuff. So, you know, you know, you know we kick it pretty well. And, um, you know, he's got a TV show. He's got, uh, was that Pig, Cricket, Banana, Goat? Yeah. And uh, so uh, he's doing well. So, um, yeah, but he, he's a big Real Deal fan. He's hardcore. Nice. Um, well, thank you, Lawrence, for joining me today. I really appreciate All right. it. I've really enjoyed talking to you. And uh, as I mentioned, folks, it is the real deal. Check it out. I've been talking to Lawrence Raw Dog Hubbard. And, uh, yeah, thank you so much. Real deal. Keep on
Now maybe someday I'll reach that higher goal I know I can make it With just a little bit of soul Cause I've got my strength And it don't make sense Not to keep on pushing Now look a look, look a look A look a yonder Keep 